Welcome back to another episode of Get in a Cashflow Game with K&K. I'm doing this intro solo today because um, Kenny has come down with a cold and a giant with a cold is a really big, really, really big baby. <laughs> so, uh, but we interviewed Michael Roeder of Granite Towers Equity Group. Uh, on the show and I actually know Michael from a uh, part of a mentorship group that I am a part of and um, so Michael's been doing some really great things um, he has been in real estate since around 2009 um, he was doing some single-family stuff and then he partnered up with a good friend of his and also started syndicating. So um, he's been in over 700 syndication units, probably in the thousands by now. Uh, and he's got a wife and two kids and he's honestly just on the track for success. Uh, so you will definitely wanna to listen to the show and I really just strongly encourage anyone uh, who wants to get into real estate to do something like this, to get part of, to be part of a group of people who are also interested in investing in the way that you're interested in investing. So for example, um, if you're looking to syndicate, then be part of a group that has other syndicators. If you want to invest in one to four units, be part of a group that you know invests in one to four units. So I just really think it's a way to help propel you to the next level, to keep you accountable, to keep you motivated, uh, to keep you kind of hearing all the language and just to kind of keep you involved and make sure that you're hitting your goals. But um, do listen to this episode. It is a really good one. There's tons of great uh, tips and it's also a great way to kind of just learn other people's stories that don't necessarily come from a real estate background. It's not in their family. It's not, you know, something that they've uh, been doing their whole life. They got involved after being in another career, oftentimes doing it on the side before they even went full time. So this is going to be a really great show. Uh, tune in and listen. And also, as always, uh, if you like this show, please make sure that you're subscribed, share it with your friends, leave us a review. We like to know uh, what you guys are thinking, if there's anything else that you want us to talk about. And of course, we always love to hear uh, a nice compliment. Thanks so much. And listen in for Mike Roeder. Well, thanks for coming on, Michael. Uh, I wanted to ask you... Or I guess I wanted to start off by saying we kind of met each other through a group that we're both involved in, uh, the Brad Sumrock group. And uh, so we've kind of started our journey into looking at investing outside of our market. But can you give everyone a little bit of just background on how you even got into syndicating and who you are? Most definitely. And thank you both for having me on the show today. I really appreciate it. A uh, little background on myself and how I got to where I am today. You know, I started out in the single family rental space. Um, first house that I had bought, I was 19 years old and my girlfriend and I had purchased that house and we rented out three out of the four bedrooms. So we kind of house hacked our first house. Loved the cash flow. We had a bunch of college buddies that were living with us. So a couple of years later, we turned that into a full blown rental, bought a few more single family rental properties. And at that time, uh, my now business partner, Dan, had been buying some apartment complexes, anywhere in between a duplex up to a 30 unit. And we decided that, hey, let's, let's put our minds together, let's put our money together, and let's buy something together. So we bought a 20 unit in our hometown, central Minnesota. We bought an eight unit right across the street. And at that time, we had quite a few people asking us how they could get involved. And, and those assets were doing really, really well. So we were loving it as well. And that's when we started to think about syndications. We started to look for properties. And then we came across the Brad Sumrock group. 
joined up with that mentorship program down in DFW. And, uh, and that was back in 2017. So that's when we started syndicating multifamily projects. Are you, is this full time for you now? Nice. And so we, before, um, everybody we were talking before we got on here, uh, started recording, we were talking about, you know, investing in your backyard. That's where you started. And then we were talking about how, you know, we live in a state, unfortunately, that's not really landlord friendly and yours has kind of switched, but obviously I think a lot of people that we deal with, we deal with a lot of people here, big and small that just stick to San Diego and stick to their backyard because they know it, they can touch it, they can feel it. And I think it's intimidating to go, I'm going to go to another market and where to go. So I was going to ask you when you guys started going from your backyard and picking markets, like how did you even start that conversation and how do you know where to go? Yeah. So we started, when we started syndicating projects, we were just looking in Minnesota again, you know, going back to, to what you just said, we wanted to stick close to home. We wanted to be able to drive to the asset and truthfully, it took us about nine months um, and we still hadn't uh, found our first syndication to, to put together. And so we got some coaching, got some advice from some really experienced investors. And they said, hey, you need to venture out. You need to have more than just this one market because there wasn't enough deal flow. And when we did that, we landed a project almost instantly. Uh, I was in Western Wisconsin, so still fairly close to home. And then after that, we just decided, hey, we need to pick another market and uh, get more deal flow because we weren't underwriting enough projects. So, you know, we took a look at a few different markets, uh, Phoenix, DFW, Indianapolis, uh, Kansas City, and we really honed in on, you know, what market has the right deal flow up for us, what market's landlord friendly, what market has, you know, a lot of job growth and population growth, and Dallas-Fort Worth was, was one of those markets for us, so we really dove into that market. So, in terms of, like, the process of determining which market you're going into, what does that look like? I mean, are you guys kind of looking at what are top markets and then you just kind of pick a handful and start diving in to see where you're going to focus? Yeah, that's, I mean, we, we take a look at the top markets. We're also taking a look at the cap rates. Um, you know, obviously cap rates are pretty compressed these days in most of the top markets, but some markets even more so than others. And with the way that the way we were underwriting projects, we needed to have a certain cash on cash return. So that was important to us. The size of the market was important to us. And then also the location as well. So Dan, my business partner, lives out on the West Coast. I live in Minnesota. So we really kind of ruled out the East Coast and the Southeastern side of the United States because we didn't want to have those you know, long, long flight times because we knew we'd be going into these markets quite often. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And so, in, so it's, it's basically you and a partner that run, that basically handle all of the asset management. Is that how it works? So what's, uh, how did you define roles, right? Cause you're both like, you go from my money, my deal, I run it all. And how do you, like, I think for a lot of people, it's like, you know, you need one that's good at raising money, one that's good at this. So how do you guys figure out who's good at what? Like, how did you ultimately pick, you know, who does what? That that's a really good question. And truthfully, we kind of fell into our roles, uh, over time and we still overlap a lot on each other. So you know, Dan will be doing something. He'll let it, let me know that he's doing a certain task so we don't double team it. Um, but as we kind of progress through our business relationship, you know, we found out that Dan is tremendous with people. He's great at raising money. And so he builds a lot of the relationships with past investors. He also builds a lot of the relationships with the brokers. 
Um, I still do that as well, but he's just phenomenal at it. And then on my side, you know, I'm really good at creating systems, um, being, you know, making our business as efficient as possible. Um, financial guy, so I do a lot of the analysis. Um, but again, we overlap on a lot of stuff. So there's not really one specific job that, you know, neither of us do or that both of us do. I got a question for you. So I think it's, uh, I think for a lot of people, you know, they're in a job, they want to get out of the job, obviously, right? Like we always know cash flow is king. It's, it's the best thing. Um, but you know, you take a leap of faith and you get a partner and he's located here and you're located here. Um, I mean, how do you guys ultimately make all this work? Because you're not sitting in a desk next to each other. I mean, I know there's, we're not here, but there's zoom, but really it's like, you're raising money, you're buying big assets, you're dealing with being, you know, owners of apartments, you know, it could be a lot of work, some work, depending. Um, how did you get, I mean, how does it all work? Like, what are some of the tips and tricks that you have found, you know, to be successful for you guys to have a great working partnership? Because in some partnerships, they just don't work out as you and I know. And that's a problem too. It is. And, you know, I feel, I feel very fortunate with our business relationship. You know, we've known each other since we were about 16 years old, um, wow. you know, best friends. So we really knew each other's personalities. We knew that we were both very driven, very motivated. And I think that's, that's probably one of the most important pieces is just whoever you get into business with, you know, make sure that they're motivated and that they're going to be working without you, you know, hassling them day and night, you know, saying, Hey, come on, we got to step it up here. Um, so that's very important. And, you know, I would say be, just be very, very open. So if there's ever an issue with that business relationship, call up that person or your business partner and say, Hey, you know, this is why I'm frustrated. How can we come to a resolution here? How can we fix this? I think a lot of people out there, um, you know, they might not bring that to their business partner's attention. And that's where you, you get into issues because it starts to snowball. Maybe that other person doesn't think there's an issue. And, and, uh, you know, if you communicated that with them, you might be able to solve that issue. So couldn't agree more. I think communication is important in any kind of relationship, whether it's business or personal or whatever. So that's, uh, yeah, a very good tip. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of was saying, I say this saying like, uh, to kind of move on to another topic, but I always say, you know, cash with King, right? Everybody say cash is King. And I say, you know what? I don't think cash is king anymore. I think if you have a, if you can find a deal, that's king. You're the king of the mountain. If you have a deal, if you locked up a deal, there's so much money now. It's like, I hear now we have tons of money. We can't find a deal. It's not like we have, you know, it's, it's, it's not the, you need cash. So how, how are you guys, when we talked, you're selling a bunch of properties right now. That means you have to exchange in other properties, you know, normally in a normal world, normal market, it's pretty not easy, but it's streamlined. Now it's becoming more complicated because you sell a building, you got to identify one and you don't want to just buy a deal to buy a deal. Like how is that dealing with that stress? Cause you're not selling one asset. You're selling what five assets right now. Correct. Yeah. So we are selling five assets right now. Um, you know, three are under contract and we'll close within the next month. So yeah, like you said, we're, we're in that situation where we need to find another asset, you know, before the end of the year, you know, to dump these funds into. And, you know, it, it can be tough um, to find assets in today's environment. However, you know, if you have the right relationships and you're set up in the right markets, you can be very confident in your ability to find an asset. Like right now I have, you know, I'm, I'm 100% certain that we will find another asset before year's end that'll close before December 31st. 
um, this year. So, you know, I really don't have a concern, but again, that goes back to how much legwork have you put in over the last year or two years or three years. And if you put in that legwork, you should be able to find an asset, but you also have to put in the time. You know, we, we put in a lot of time and effort on underwriting deals and having our team underwrite our deals um, to be able to actually find that needle in a haystack. Yeah, it's uh, one of the things that I have seen over the years and part of the reason why even we've looked at or looking at syndication is too, when you talk about deal flow, um, especially, you know, you've been calling brokers for who, who knows how many, for several years now, building relationships, but you've also been more active than the average person who can only buy it, who's only buying themselves and they have a limited amount of funds. So, uh, people like you are getting more access to deals and, and also probably getting pushed to the front of the line on deals more so than someone who buys a property once every couple years or five years or, or whatever. And they're, they're in and out of the business. And so they're not maintaining those relationships. I couldn't agree more. You know, quick story. We had a, an asset earlier this year that we purchased 264 units out in Tyler, Texas from a broker. And we have another deal under contract, totally off market from that same broker in that same market. And they actually just pitched us another deal right across the street, totally off market. So like you said, the more active you are and the more that you stay in front of these brokers, the more opportunities that are going to present themselves to you. So I was going to, I think the, you know, I think the challenging thing is, is, you know, getting the deal and then having the deal make sense, right? Because it's Crystal and I, because we've been able to, we have traveled around and looked at deals ourselves, whether it was like Texas or Florida, we spent time like boots on the ground, drive it, learn about it. And then, you know, you realize you're like, okay, like cap rates are definitely compressed in a lot of markets. Like, you know, maybe five years ago, things were a little bit more upside here, upside there. But then you come back home, you're like, wow, cap rates are really tight. It's, it's not just a deal flow, but then it's like you get a deal, but does it work? Um, how are you guys navigating through that? Because I feel like that's even more challenging because, you know, it's one thing to find a deal. It's another thing. Does that deal going to make sense for your exchange, for your investors, and for you ultimately where the return, you got to return money to in capital? Right. And, and cash flow is extremely important. I mean, obviously the higher the cash flow, the lower the risk in most, most circumstances. So, you know, one thing that we have pivoted on over the last year is just switching from agency loans, you know, where you're doing a deal with Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac um, to bridge loans where you're able to get the higher leverage, you're able to leverage, you know, the, the rehab budget as well. And that allows your returns to go up a little bit. Um, so that's one thing that we've had to do. And, you know, I was talking to a lender the other day and they said, you know, this year, 2021, about 80 to 85% of their business was bridge loans. Whereas, you know, a couple of years back, it was the exact opposite. 85% was, you know, Fannie and Freddie uh, debt. So that's one thing that we've, we've pivoted on. Um, we've also went out to, you know, some secondary markets. So, you know, looking at DFW, a lot of times we're not landing the assets right in, you know, Dallas or Fort Worth. Maybe it's 30 minutes or 45 minutes outside of the downtown metro. And sometimes that can give you a little bit higher, you know, cap rate on the buy-in, a little bit higher cash on cash. So we've found, um, you know, those secondary markets to be more appealing to us. And we've been able to land more projects in those markets. Yeah, I was going to say too, I mean, the just because of the competitiveness, like, you know, 
for example, here in San Diego, our market is what we would call competitive uh, for sure. And we're not landlord friendly either. So most out of state people don't even want to have anything to do with investing in California. So we're literally competing with a lot more locals here. And let's say that a very competitive deal might have, you know, seven or eight offers and that's competitive. But in DFW or some of these areas that are known to be landlord friendly and uh, business friendly, you're dealing with people coming from New York, California, like all over the map, Minnesota, you know, to, <laughs> to buy deals. And I'm hearing maybe 25, 30 offers and maybe even more on certain deals. So outside of your relationship, uh, your relationships with the brokers, what do you think is also giving you the competitive edge in winning deals, especially when you're going into a new market? You bet. So, and you're right, Crystal, you know, we're seeing about 15 to 20 offers on most of the projects that we're uh -huh. bidding on in DFW and Nashville. So it's very, very competitive. You know, I think you have to pick and choose what assets you're really focusing your time on and, and, you know, spending the time and effort on, because, you know, if you're not going to be that competitive on price, you're probably not going to be in there. You want to make sure that you're, you're going to be able to get above and beyond what their whisper price is, because what we're seeing is, you know, usually the assets are trading for five to 10% above the whisper in these hot, hot markets. Now there are some brokers that list, you know, very high and you, you start to begin to know that. So, you know, you can underwrite to that, but I would say, you know, other than the relationship with the brokers, which is extremely crucial, you know, obviously build up that relationship as best as possible, but the terms, you know, the terms are very, very important. And after, you know, we're, we're going through five sales right now and we've had, we had a buyer fall through. And so we're really noticing firsthand how crucial it is to select a buyer that's going to follow through and close on the asset and not, you know, pull out, you know, a month or two down the line. So if you can, you know, increase, um, you know, the terms that you're uh, portraying in your LOI, that's going to set you apart as well. You know, say someone's putting $150,000 hard day one, and you're able to put 400 or $500,000 hard day one, you know, that's going to show that you're extremely serious. And even if you're new in that market, you know, that's going to carry some weight. Same with your due diligence period. If you have a financing contingency, maybe removing that. Um, so there's different ways that you can go about it. You can also play to the, the seller's uh, emotions as well. If you can find out why they're selling that property and what's important to them, you know, that, that can really help the cause as well. So I was going to ask you about your strategies. Um, Cause obviously, like you mentioned, it's funny, even here in San Diego, I mean, Crystal's been doing commercial financing, you know, for 17 years and I would even say it's kind of rare you start going, oh, we should look at bridge loans because, you know, here there's assets you can buy too, but they're so under rented because, you know, somebody has it free and clear. They don't really care. They get the cash flow and they just have no intention to raise the rents. And if they do, it's just minimal. But for you guys, you're, you know, you're buying this big asset. You're in a market that's more landlord friendly. What is this? Is this strategy you know, buy it, get the bridge. And then how long is it typically taking you to get the rents up? And what are you doing to get the rents up? Is it getting, kicking them out? Is it just improve the property on the outside and push it up? Like what is your strategy in today's market? Yep. So our strategy is, is typically to come in and, you know, boost the rents to perform over a 12 to 18 month period. And it really depends on the asset. Um, but that's, that's typically our strategy. 
Now we don't kick the tenants out. We'll give them the option. So, you know, say their rent is at a thousand and our pro forma rents at 1150. We'll bump their pro forma rent up likely to that 1150 when their renewal comes up, but we'll give them, usually we'll give them the option to either do a partial upgrade inside their unit. If they still have a classic unit where maybe we're just replacing the appliances or putting in some light fixtures, something simple where you don't have to have them move everything out. Or if you have a vacant unit that's not rented it yet, you could renovate that unit and allow them to switch units to that, you know, fully upgraded unit. So that way everyone feels like they're winning. It's a win-win situation. And then how are you guys in the market you're in? I mean, obviously I think, you know, since the pandemic, it's funny. I think the pandemic first hit and um, I listened to sometime, I'm drawing a blank, uh, the guy that works, uh, Greg, uh, the economist, the multifamily economist, you remember his name, Greg, um, What's the big not? He's always with real page, right? Yeah, real page. Yeah, yeah you know I'm talking. It's right, but he came out. You know, pandemic hit. He's like worried about we're gonna get rent growth and this, and all of a sudden, the you know, it went from is anybody gonna pay? We're all gonna get screwed. To okay, it's not as bad, and I don't think we're gonna see rent growth. And all of a sudden, we're all like, wait a minute, there's gonna be some serious rent growth here. It's funny how yeah, awesome. you look back, and we always look back, and the, it was panic, and then it was okay, let's calm down. Then it was okay, the first month wasn't bad. The second month we got rent collections and now we're not sure about rent growth. You shouldn't be raising rents. All of a sudden is, oh my gosh, everybody's raising rents now. Um, and I mean, is, are you seeing that across the board in all markets that you're entering and you own? Yeah, good question. So not all markets, but most of the markets. So, you know, Dallas, Fort Worth, definitely Tennessee, you know, Minnesota, yes. Um, and, you know, we... We're actually involved in a secondary market in Texas, and I was just looking at the CoStar report today. And this year alone, they were projecting a 21% rent increase. Whoa! Unbelievable! Oh my god! You know, I think 12%, and even that's phenomenal. I mean, if you can yeah. hit a three, four percent per year, you know, typically that's a great number. So yeah, we're seeing some tremendous, you know, rent increases. Now we do have an asset in an oil market um, and that's been hit very hard, you know, because of COVID and what's happened over the last, you know, year and a half. Um, so that one, we are not seeing the rent increases like Dallas, Fort Worth and some of the other hot markets. So, and I think that, you know, it depends city to city, you know, you go to some of the coastal cities and you might not be experiencing that um, and same with oil markets. So, so I want to ask you, what you have to say about the two kind of most common rebuttals I get from people who, you know, just prefer to invest in their own backyard, especially in a non-landlord friendly state like ours. And now Minnesota is kind of going that direction for you. So the two most common things that I hear is one, um, you know, I have a friend that sold his stuff here in San Diego and he bought an apartment building in Texas and it's the exact same cap rate. So like maybe he sold an eight unit building in San Diego to buy a 16 unit building in Texas, um, but the cap rate's still the same. So he's not getting any better return. Uh, then the second argument that I hear is, yeah, I get that people, all these people are investing in Texas. It's such a great example because it's such a hot market. Um, but I don't really feel comfortable because when you go over to Texas, like for example, in California, they're not making any more land. Like everything's built up. You can't build anywhere. If you go to Texas, you look around and there's just land everywhere. 
And that, that makes me nervous because, you know, when things go down, it's, it's obviously not as desirable of a place to be as maybe like a, a Southern California. So what do you have to say about those two common kind of misconceptions or complaints? You bet. So the, the cap rate, you know, truthfully, we don't pay a ton of te- attention to our going in cap rate, what we're purchasing at, because we're adding value. You know, we're sticking a lot of dollars into the assets and we're driving the NOI up. So it's driving the value up. Um, so, you know, even if you're, you're trading a property in California, it's at one cap rate and you're buying in Texas and it's at the exact same cap rate. Well, if you're buying all cash and you're not really doing any, anything to the property, yeah, then maybe that doesn't make sense. But if you can find a nice value add project where you can boost the income, you know, you'll see your returns go up. So you want to pay attention to a lot more than just the cap rate, pay attention to the rent growth, pay attention to the vacancy rate, pay attention to, you know, what you're capped at for increasing the rents. If you have rent control in the state, um, pay attention to the, the expenses and how, how expensive it is to do your CapEx project. So there's just a lot that goes into it. So Again, just don't don't just pay attention to the cap rate. Now, as far as the land goes in Texas, you know, I think that's something to take into consideration, but you also want to consider how many people are moving to the state or to the city that you're investing in. And a great way to take a look at that is if you go to U-Haul's website, you can see a map of, you know, how many one-way U-Hauls are going to certain cities. And that'll really tell you a lot about the city that you're investing in. And if you can see a trend over time where it's happened for the last three, five, 10 years, you know, then you can get pretty comfortable that that's going to continue happening. And in a city like Dallas, Fort Worth, yes, there's a lot of land, but there's also a significant amount of demand. And then one other thing to look into is the supply, you know, how many units are coming online over the next couple of years and make sure to take that into consideration as as well when you're underwriting. I love that because, uh, so we had an, another, um, a guy on a uh, Logan Matashami and I, I love him. He's like, he calls himself like a data nerd. So, um, he's like, uh, and, and he's an editor or chief something to, uh, housing wire, housing wire. Yeah. super funny guy. Super cool. He's yeah. You have to look him up. He's, yeah. So he writes regularly there, but, um, I, and it's kind of funny cause he calls people like this trolls which is probably not a popular opinion, <laughs> but it, it's, it's, it's basically like people who make these like very general statements and like, cons- like consider it the law. So things like, yeah, they're not making any more land. Like it sounds very catchy and very good. And you go, oh, wow, that that's right. But it's not backed up by any data. So I love that your answer is to check the data of, you know, how many people are moving in and into a city and, you know, check, uh, you know, maybe how many jobs are coming into the city and these, these kinds of things, because this is all, so what you're saying is that you make decisions based on data and not based on these like very general statements that sound great, but aren't backed up by data. Exactly. And I mean, if you're, if you're searching for something to support your decision, you know, if you have a certain opinion, I mean, you can find, you can find data to go either way. Um, but just, yeah, make, make sure that you're drilling up enough reliable data and, you know, maybe talking to some investors that are already involved in that market and see how things are going, see what they like, see what they don't like. And yeah, I think you can make a really good educated decision by doing those two things. Yeah. And you know, the one other thing you did mention, it's like, you think about it, but you know, how much is it, you know, what do you got to do to a unit in San Diego or wherever 
or what do you got to do in Texas? What is the cost? And what, you know, you're putting in X and you're getting a return of X and you're putting in X, you're getting return of X. So that's the thing is, is there is a cost because, you know, it could be more expensive to do things here than over there because obviously the cost of labor, materials, whatever. I mean, you know, our gas here is always a dollar higher minimum than everybody else because we have a gas tax, you know? So that's, uh, I, you know, I don't think about that, but you have to, too, because it could be a lot more money just if we did the same unit turn just because of labor. I'm, I'm already noticing that. Like, when I, I'm in the Sumrock group and I see people making their estimates of, like, their unit renovations. We're like, wow. I'm like, what can you do with $7,000 in one unit? And that's, like, a big job. Here we're, like, twenty five grand. you know? That's that's a unit. That's a rehab. It could be, yeah. I mean, but you, you might be even less, but, I mean, seven grand's light, 15's more normal, and 25's both seven. We're like, wow. And you're like, you do this and that. So I think it comes to supply and labor. And, I mean, it's funny. Crystal and I, we, we were in Miami for a month, and we drove around. And so when I go into cities now, I look and I go, what's the minimum wage? We're in Texas. And I was like, you know, we're in Miami and literally I know it's September 1st, but um, I'm thinking about is their minimum wage is 865 in Florida and it's going to go to $10 and every year it's going to go up a dollar. And I was telling Crystal, you know, COVID did a couple things, the pandemic it's number one is, you know, probably not building things stalled. Things are now lagging, which is good for us. Not good for the normal person, but also wages are going up, but wages going up when you own property is like gold falling from the sky. And I don't, you know, it's funny when you look back and you go, how is this all going to turn out? Forget the lockdowns and all that from a business standpoint, how is this going to turn out for our industry? Now we're September you know, in 2021, you look back, you're like, this has turned out pretty damn good. You know, like, I mean, how many units, I was going to ask you, how many units do you own? And out of that, what was your lost rents probably? And how did that turn out? I know you're a couple of markets because I was just curious. And also is where you're going into, you guys are seeing massive wage increase too, I'm guessing as well, right? Right, exactly. And we, you know, we have about 1600 units, um, assets under management right now. And, you know, I would say, you know, about two to 3% increase in delinquencies, you know, across a, a decent chunk of our assets, but that was pretty short term. And a lot of, you know, those delinquencies have been taken care of through state assistance. Now the state assistance has been very slow, especially in some markets. So it drags on and drags on because they have such an influx of applications, you know, for, for that assistance. But, you know, overall, multifamily in general has done tremendous over the last year and a half. And especially when you compare it to other asset classes, you know, you look at retail when COVID hit, you look at hospitality, commercial. I mean, a lot of those got hit very hard, whereas, you know, multifamily really, you know, stood the weather very well. So. Yeah. I mean, we're uh, even here in California, I mean, probably there too, you know, we're driving around and all of a sudden you're like, wow, that's, you know, in a, we're in Mission, Mission Valley here, which is a very, a lot of businesses, a lot of people moving around. This is like kind of the central spot, one of them. And, you know, there's a strip mall over here, which is full. And then you're looking like they just lost like two or three big tenants. And you're kind of like, ouch. And then you go, we, we have a mall over here. It's Westfield, which put a lot of money into all these malls. They made a billion dollars, this mall, a billion dollars here, there. And we're in there and like, they're just tenants never, never, they never came to the space. So they left and you see these and you're like, there is, they just did a massive build out for the Equinox gym. 
this whole thing was there. They are signed up, pandemic came. They just bailed out of their lease. Huge. It's sitting there. And I'm like telling Crystal, like, you don't even know how that's going to look, but that's crazy. I mean, it's, how is that going to recover? You know, I mean. Exactly. I mean, that impacts the bottom line significantly when you're a landlord of one of those, those assets. So, you know, again, that's one of the, one of the reasons why I love multifamily is you're just spreading the risk amongst many, many units. You know, if you can get a hundred or 200 unit property, you know, yeah, if your vacancy goes up a little bit, you might have a couple extra vacant units, but you're still doing well. You're still able to, to pay your mortgage, you know, hopefully distribute, you know, some good cash on cash returns still to your investors. And, you know, it just, just makes sense. One of the other things that I learned too, because we had a property management company is that even when, let's say you had to evict a tenant in one of your apartment buildings, like I can call my eviction attorney and get, you know, ask a question and I'm not going to get a bill, you know, for 15 minutes of their time. Um, I can kind of get the advice and then you kind of have like pretty standard costs for evictions and things. If you have an issue with a tenant in a commercial space, you are dealing with a whole different ball game. It's like yeah. exactly what you would expect from an attorney big retainer, charging for every 15 minutes, every email sent, every copy of, you know, they made or letter they sent out, like all this kind of stuff. So you're really playing on a different uh, field when you're dealing with commercial. It's much more sophisticated, which just means it's a lot more expensive. Um, So what do you say to like somebody who's looking to potentially invest with you guys or who's maybe thinking they don't have time to do all this. They don't want to deal with all these tenants. They don't want to find deals. They want to do all that. What kinds of things should they be looking for when they're looking at investing their money with a syndicator? Yeah, there's a, a few, a few different things that uh, passive investors should be looking for. I mean, first and foremost, you have to know, like, and trust the general partners. So whoever's on the general partner team, partnership team, make sure that you feel very comfortable in their ability. Um, the other thing that you want to take a look at is the team that they're employing to you know, do the third-party management, to do the CPA or the, the tax work, to do the legal work, um, you know, the contractors. You want to make sure that the full team has been vetted and that they're going to do a solid job as well. And I would say the, the most important piece of that team, other than the asset management, is that third-party manager. So if that team has experience with them or if they can show you why they trust them, you know, that's going to be huge as well. Number three, the market. You know, you want to make sure that the market that you're investing in, you feel comfortable with and, you know, that it basically has some, some potential um, and is really mitigating risk. So I think those three items are, are very, very important. And, you know, if anybody has any questions on that, um, I actually wrote an ebook. It's called The Five Steps to Successful Passive Investing. So if you go to our website, you can download that for free as well. Very cool. That's yeah. awesome. That's I, cool. I love to, I, I love to cover that because it's amazing to me how many people don't know that passive investing is even an option. Um, and then even when they do find out that it's an option, uh, they don't know where to start. So it's kind of, uh, one of those things I tell people, if you feel like you're too busy, I mean, you can easily passively invest and still at least start making a return on your money. Exactly. You certainly can. And there's, you know, there's quite a few syndicators out there that are putting together really good deals and you might not have access to them, but if you start, you know, asking around and talking to some, some real estate investors, you know, I think you can drum up some really good referrals. And that's probably one of the best ways to go about investing is just, you know, finding someone that's invested 
or that uh, you know one of your friends or family members or colleagues has invested with before and they have some experience with that general partner, um, that's going to show you a lot right there as well. And what would you say for, you know, somebody that's just, you know, it's your friend, it's somebody calls you and says, Hey, Michael, I know you're in all these units. I'm thinking about buying a four unit multifamily. I've never owned any property. What is the advice you're going to give to that? You know, when you were first getting started, that first time buyer, whether it's in Minnesota or Texas or anywhere. Yeah. First and foremost, get educated, you know, so I'll, I'll typically give some people um, some book recommendations, podcast recommendations, you know, and if you can listen to some good content, you know, at least for a couple of months and, you know, get yourself used to all the terminology and the markets and what people are doing and what they're not doing or what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. I think that's going to help out a ton. Now, if you are looking to, you know, bring on other people's money and syndicate projects, I would personally highly recommend either partnering up with someone that's done, you know, five, six, seven assets or acquisitions or finding a mentor, you know, that, that has done many, many projects that you can kind of rely on and lean on, you know, while you're going about that avenue. And what do you think in the next, you know, year or two, what do you think is going to be the biggest challenge in this industry? And what do you think is going to be the, like the biggest gains or wins in this industry? What do you see? Yeah. So biggest challenge, I think, you know, right now we're, our challenge is finding the personnel. So finding qualified onsite managers to manage the property, finding contractors to get the CapEx projects done. You know, there are a lot of jobs out there. I heard a stat the other day that there's more job postings than people looking for jobs. So, you know, right there, there, it's a little bit of an issue. So I think that's going to continue to be an issue over the next year or two. Um, Wins. I mean, I think, the rent growth is going to be phenomenal over the next few years, you know, with, like you were saying, with wages going up with all the money that's been printed by the fed. I mean, you're going to see a lot of inflation. And when you have inflation, typically, you know, hard tangible assets like multifamily real estate are going to do pretty dang well. So I see that uh, being a huge, huge plus uh, for multifamily real estate. You know, one of the other negatives, possibly eviction moratoriums, you know, again, they can impose that the government can pretty quickly. Now, if you can screen your tenants properly, invest in the right markets, maybe buy a little bit nicer assets. A lot of times you can alleviate, you know, having to go through the eviction process. So there's things that you can do to, to really get around that. Yeah. I think a lot of, um, somebody's mentioned the other day, uh, I think a lot of mom, pa people that, you know, maybe didn't pull the background report, didn't really look at income, didn't dive, you know, didn't do the deep dive. Cause it's like, they're just lazy. I think they're now going, okay, I need to make sure I pay attention because, you know, they might be the ones because, you know, you hear these people like, I have a friend and the tenants aren't paying your rent. And I'm like, hmm, that's not, that's kind of unusual. And I'm like, half is building. I'm like, is he managing? Yeah. I'm like, did he screen? He goes, well, I don't know. I go, that sounds like a screening issue because it's very rare. You hear like 30, 40 to your tenants are paying. I'm like, it sounds like they either got together or you just, you know, he, oh, my, my, you know, this one guy referred all of his friends into my building. It's been great until they all got together and said, we're not going to pay rent, you know? So you got to put in the the effort and, you know, the screening up front. I mean, that's extremely important. Um, otherwise you're going to have a lot of headaches in the back end. I always say you got to treat it like a business because that's what it is. <laughs> Yeah. Always tell people they call and go, what's the advice? I said, well, I'm going to tell you something. It's probably going to insult you. Okay. 
you're willing, if you're if you're willing to rent your to your grandma, mom, and you're not willing to evict them, then don't rent to them. They're like, what? I said, I know that doesn't make sense now, but when you've owned as much stuff, you'll get it because you'll be like, we literally. I had I was talking to a lady. I remember I referred you. The lady they had evict their son out of a rental property. It took a year and a half. Like, who does that? But this is. But she learned. She's like, you just never know. Um. And it's, you know, going back to, to renting to family and friends, I mean, do you really want to tarnish that relationship? You know, I, w- I would say it's probably worthwhile um, going the other route and finding someone that's that's not related, if you can. It's been a hard no for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and kind of wrapping up, you know, I was listening to Grant Cardone, whether you like him or not. Um, he said something, and it's obviously, it's, you know, it's their top of mind, but he said, you know, a lot of money in the last about five years ago or so has entered into the space, the real estate space. And he put it where money wants to get a return, you know, wants that cash flow and it's moved into multifamily, you know, and um, I don't think it's just us. I think people globally have watched because of guys like Grant Cardone and podcast and these things go viral. They look and they go, wait a minute, how does this work? And they've looked from the tax standpoint, the cash flow, the appreciation, the cash out refis, the repositioning, the 1031s. And so I think more than ever, there's so much money in this multifamily space. I mean, Texas market is the, if you think I tell people, it's the king of multifamily deals, right? I mean, what are you, do you see that too? Is just like the money pouring into this space. Like, I just feel like it's not going to stop because there's so many great aspects to this business. Exactly. And that's, that's what I'm seeing as well. And what I think will continue to happen is you'll see more and more money funneling into this space. You know, we've, we've seen it already. I mean, we're competing with REITs, we're competing with life insurance companies outside the U.S. foreign investors. I mean, you name it. And, you know, again, back to what you said, I mean, there's just so many different benefits that multifamily offers to investors that, you know, there's just a lot of people flooding towards it. And what happens when, when you have all these funds coming into the space is the cap rates compress and obviously that helps, you know, drive your pricing up. Um, so it's, it's a benefit to us. Yeah. It might be a little bit tough um, on the buy side when you're seeing cap rates compress, especially if you've been in the game for, you know, 10, 15 years, you yeah. remember the price per door being, you know, 20, 30 K per unit. And now it's 110 K a unit. Sometimes it's tough to get past that mind block, but you just got to look at the fundamentals. You got to look at how the property underwrites, you know, conservatively. And, you know, if the, if the uh, returns look reasonable, you know, then, then go ahead and jump in and make an offer on the property. What's next for you guys? What's ahead in the next, uh, to finish out the year next year, just sell, selling and buying new, just work at focusing on the sell and buys. Yeah, exactly. We, you know, we focus on doing about four to six assets per year in that 15 to $35 million range. And one thing that we've been really focused on is building out our team. So that way we can continue to progress um, with that amount of properties per year. So this year, uh, well, over the last 12 months, we hired on a full-time CFO. We have a full-time assistant, a real estate analyst, and then we're going to be bringing on a full-time asset manager. So just making sure that we're, we're going at the right pace. Well, it sounds like you're doing all the right things because that's all positive growth. 
Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, same back to you guys. You guys are doing phenomenal. Thank you. Yeah. So congrats to your success. So where, before our last question, where is the best place people can find you, learn more about you? Maybe they want to grab your ebook, which sounds awesome. And you or know, listen to your podcast. Yeah. Listen to your Got podcast. Give us where people with the best place to go to find all that information about you. Definitely. So you can reach us through our website, which is granite towers, equity and there's a few tabs on there. There's the ebook that you can download. There's our podcast that'll show all our podcasts that we've launched. And then we have our contact us page. And then of course, if you want to email me directly, my email is mike at granitetowersequitygroup.com. And thanks again, you two, for having me on. I really appreciate it. What a fun show. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So our final question we ask everybody is, um, what is your definition, definition of generational wealth? Definition of generational wealth um, to me would be where you can pass it, pass it on generation to generation for, you know, I would say at least five generations. Um, And that's something that we're trying to teach our children, uh, you know, how to keep the wealth that we pass down to them. And, you know, as far as a dollar amount, I don't have a specific dollar amount, but, you know, I think if you can pass on, you know, maybe $20 million or so, I mean, that's, that would definitely be generational wealth to me. And then when you teach your kids about, um, cause we have this conversation a lot, um, is, uh, this guy, Bobby Castro, if you ever heard of him, um, he was talking about, you know, his thing was, is he's, you know, he gets consulted by billionaires. They said, the biggest thing is, is it's not the next generation. It's the next generation that basically spends it all. And so you're really trying to not educate this one, but you got to educate this one to the next one to that one. Cause I think by generation two or three, it's like, could be gone. So what, what do you kind of focus on and what would you recommend for somebody, you know, that's passing on these assets? Like, what do you think is important for uh, a family to know and pass on to their kids? Yeah. So first off, I would say, you know, integrate your children when they're young. You know, we have a nine-year-old and a five-year-old, both daughters. You know, we've already set them up with a, a candy machine business. So they, they're helping out with that business. It's their little, little joint venture. And, you know, we've started to integrate our nine-year-old into our apartment business or multifamily business as well, where she's learning the lingo. She's going to the properties with us every once in a while. And it starts to drum up that interest. And I think if you can continuously do that, involve them in what you're doing and show them how it can be fun. I mean, obviously there's certain aspects that aren't fun, but if you can really bring out that fun in some of the, some of the items that you teach them, you know, it's, it's going to really increase their interest in, in what you're doing. And I think as they get older, as they get into the teenage years or, you know, low twenties, you know, I think just talking about teaching their children when they do have children and how to do that, um, that's really going to help, you know, keep that generational wealth and teach their children when they, when they grow up. That's awesome. I like that. I like the, you got them a little business. That's cool. We have two girls too. So they're, they're not that they're young, but I like that. That's a good idea. Getting all the tips we can. (laughs) Well, Michael, thanks so much for coming on. Again, congrats on all your success. I just love when people, you know, jump in and learn something. I know it's a lot of hard work. What you guys do, it's not easy. It's a grind. But I mean, you know, you're going to look back in five, 10 years and you'll be in such a good position, uh, just cash flow wise, equity wise, all that. And then plus you can pass it on to the next generation. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much. Awesome. All right. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.